Good morning. It's good to be back. Uh, my family and I were on a bit of a vacation uh, last week. We were away at Mexico. I know. <sighs> we, uh, yeah, I know. I feel the sympathy. Uh, we actually ran into a number of Sunwesters in Mexico, actually. Uh, you leave Calgary and you can't get away from you guys. Uh, but it, no, it was great. Uh, we only had one sunny day, so uh, I'm just complaining up here. Uh, anyways, it's good to be back. Great to be with you. Uh, before we jump into the new series, just a couple of really quick announcements. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are new here, a uh, special welcome to you. We have a connection card that's at the Welcome Center. Uh, you can fill that out uh, there in person. If you're online, you can go on our website. There's a, connect, uh, there's a tab that says I'm new. You can fill out the connection card there. Uh, allows us to get to know you, and you get to know us. If you call SunWest home, uh, also welcome to you. Uh, we'd ask you to pray and consider if you do call this home, what God would have you give uh, continually to the ministries here uh, at SunWest. We have a couple of announcements that we'll tack on to the end of the service, so uh, don't rush out at the, after the last song. I'll stick around with us uh, just for a couple of minutes there at the end. Um, we are starting a new series called The Gospel BC, and this is... Uh, We're in the season of Lent, uh, which is 40 days leading up to Easter weekend. And so as we're preparing for Easter weekend, we're preparing our hearts kind of through this series as we think about the gospel, uh, BC. And the gospel uh, actually just means good news. Everybody say good news. So the gospel just means good news. So if you hear the term gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what it's saying is the good news that Matthew wrote about or Mark Luke, John wrote about. Uh, and the, this idea of gospel comes from a Greek word called euangelion. Uh, and that word is typically used in the first century to describe the announcement of a king, that something important had happened. Perhaps the, the, the war had, uh, or the kingdom, those, the armies had won a war, sorry, for the kingdom. And the, so there was an announcement that went out throughout the kingdom saying, here's the good news that happened. Here's the euangelion that happened. Or perhaps uh, there was a royal birth uh, that happened. Uh, and if you are in junior high, I see that, uh, grade six to eight, you can go out. This is the euangelion, the important good news. You don't have to sit in my talk. Uh, Colton has a talk just for you. You go through the doors in the welcome center. Thank you. Uh, media team. Uh, so you, <laughs> euangelion, uh, the good news, the announcement, uh, something important has happened. And so Jesus came bringing a gospel, bringing a good news declaration that, that God was up to something, something uh, significant happened, and the good news was found in the life, the ministry, and particularly the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the good news, even though it kind of came to be and came to be realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus actually let us know that this good news was being talked about, foreshadowed, explained throughout the history of the world. In fact, in Luke 24, there's a story after the resurrection of Jesus where there's a couple of disciples walking on a road to Emmaus, and they're talking, and they're trying to deal with everything that had happened, and uh, and they were frustrated because they'd put their hope in this Messiah called Jesus, the, the one that they thought was going to save them and redeem Israel, and uh, and he didn't. That didn't happen. He got crucified. They put all their hopes in the wrong person. T- the disciples are talking about this on the seven mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and then this other individual begins walking beside them, and it turns out that this individual walking beside them is Jesus. 
And he says, what are you, what are you guys talking about? And, he's, and they say, are you the only one that hasn't heard about all the events that have happened? This Messiah, this su- supposed king who got crucified, uh, have you not been paying attention to the news? Um, and so we see that Jesus was going alongside of them, and they were kept from recognizing him. They were on this journey, and even though they knew Jesus, they knew what he looked like, there was something profound about this interaction where they were kept, something was being withheld from them. They were kept from recognizing Jesus, but Jesus was in their midst, and they didn't even recognize it as they were going on their journey. And I think it's a little bit of a picture for many of us who are going through life. We're on a journey, and we don't recognize that Jesus is with us. Maybe like those disciples, we're frustrated, we're disappointed, things in our life haven't turned out the way we want, the the hope that we thought we had hasn't come to fruition in our life, and we're going on, we're saying, where is God, where was God in all this? This This is the situation that those disciples were in, and it turns out that Jesus was right beside them on the way, and they didn't recognize him because he was almost too ordinary. A resurrected king, they had maybe different expectations of what he would look like other than the ordinary man that starts showing up on the road beside them. So this man asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in the last days? And they go on to describe the events of the crucifixion and the false hopes that they placed in Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Everybody say all the scriptures. So in the whole Old Testament, so your Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first two thirds of that, your Bible is the Old Testament. And so this would have been the scriptures for them up until this point. And so in all of these scriptures, he started explaining to them the events that had just happened. There's a couple of different ways that you can read the Bible. You know, many people read the Bible for different purposes and different motives. Some read it, you know, more like a fable, trying to get moralistic uh, ideas, good ideas uh, for life, for parenting, for living, whatever. Uh, sometimes people le- read the Bible to justify decisions that they, they're making um, or they have a particular angle that they want to take. Uh, but Jesus has a particular way of reading the Bible. In fact, he says that there's a right way to read the Bible. And he gives them the interpretive key. And he says, you understand and unlock the scriptures when you start to see everything that existed in them that was pointing and concerning myself. And so when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so Jesus unlocks something for them that they didn't see their whole lives. Now, these guys knew their Bibles better than you and I know our Bibles for sure. Their entire school system was dedicated to them understanding the scriptures, and yet there was something that they didn't know that you and I know, that they realized here in this moment with Jesus. They had the written word, but they actually needed the living word, which is what John chapter 1 refers to as Jesus. They needed the living word to reveal and unlock the meaning of the written word. 
And so that you see the way that it works is that the written word, the whole point of it was to reveal Jesus. In fact, scholars have a word for this called Christotelic, which is a really fancy way that brings two words together, Christ and telos. Telos just means goal, the end goal, the culmination. And Jesus says that there's actually, when, when you read the Bible with this Christotelic understanding that Christ is the goal, it starts to unlock what the Bible is actually all about. Jesus shows them the gospel, the good news is actually him and his life, his death and his resurrection. And this, this whole scriptures that they based their life around was pointing to this moment in history. And so what we have happening is that the written word was given to us to reveal the living word, the good news of Jesus. And then Jesus actually goes back, back with us and helps us understand the written word from the very beginning. Do you see how this works? This is the cycle of understanding this Christocentric or Christotelic understanding of the Bible where we see Jesus as the point, the the good news, the gospel as the point of the whole story. And so the gospel BC, as we look at over the next five weeks, is the good news before Christ. The good news BC, before the birth of Christ. Obviously, Christ has been there for all time. The good news before the birth of Christ. So how far back does this go? Well, we, don't, we only have five weeks, and we can't teach the whole Old Testament in five weeks, but we're going to look at a few different stories and passages from the Old Testament to help us see how Jesus was actually in the plan from the very beginning, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So how far back does it go? It goes all the way back to the very beginning. In the beginning of your Bible is Genesis 1-2. The plan, the story of Jesus is already unraveling from the very beginning. So in the very beginning, God created humanity. He, he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In this Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Everything was the way it was meant to be. We refer to this very simply around Sun West as the word shalom. Shalom means right relationship with God, with others, with self, with our identity, understanding who we are, and right relationship with the world. That God created us to live in a particular way, in right relationship with him and one another, with a particular purpose in this world. In fact, we can see that the understanding of what it means to be human is actually right there in the very beginning of Genesis. There's a few verses in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There's a number of really important things just in these three verses as the story of the Bible unfolds that helps us understand who we are, that sets the table for us to understand what God is doing throughout history and the role that Jesus plays in reconciling us back to God and bringing shalom into our lives and into this broken world. We see right off the hop in Genesis chapter 2 that God gives humanity purpose. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden to work it, and take care of it, that we were given a vocation, we were given a purpose. You and I are here for a reason, and God put Adam and Eve in the garden for a purpose. We also see that God gave us permission. God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I often ask people, what's the first commandment that God gave? And they say, don't eat from the bad tree of knowledge and good and evil. And that's not the first commandment God gives. God says, you can freely, you should eat. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There's a freedom to enjoy, to play, to taste, to live, to laugh. 
Humanity was given purpose and vocation. Humanity was given permission and freedom to enjoy the world that God had made. And humanity was also given a prohibition. God says, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there was a limitation. There was a certain framework for them to live this life of shalom, to thrive the way that God intended. There was a limitation to how they ought to live. But all three of these are important for us to understand what it means to be human. Purpose, permission, prohibition. To take away any one of these three would be to diminish what it means to be human. And it's unfortunate, often in our understanding of this story, of the biblical story, as we go through it in Genesis chapter 3 in particular, that we think the main thing in the Genesis story was all about God's prohibition. That God was telling us what not to do. But that is not the case. God actually gives us purpose. God gives us freedom. God gives us limitations, yes, but it's part of the bigger picture. In fact, we live in a culture that believes that that religion is all about prohibition and all about the things that you can't do, and that's part of the story. But it's not the whole story. In fact, the thing that we long for, the life that we long for, to live in shalom with God and others, is prohibition is one part of that bigger picture, but it's not the whole picture. We've been given purpose. We've been given freedom. And yes, we've been given limitations that are necessary for us to thrive in the world that God created. So this is the story of Genesis 1 and 2. And then we get to Genesis 3. Uh, and if you've been around church, you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know the story of Genesis Three, um, but we will see as we look at Genesis three that the gospel is right there in the very beginning that God had a plan from the very beginning. Genesis three one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" So the serpent comes into the story. This representation of evil, this representation of temptation to turn away from God's design. And he tempts and tests Eve, and he tests particularly the prohibition of God. He's trying to make God sound more prohibitive than God actually is. Do you see that? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not what God said, but it almost sounds a little bit like what God said. God actually gave so much permission, so much freedom. And so Eve actually passes the first test, and she answers the the serpent, rightly, she says, we may eat from any tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from that particular tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So she understands what God had said correctly. And so the serpent comes again, tries a different tactic to test her. It didn't work to challenge the prohibition side, so he's going to actually challenge Eve's understanding of God's freedom and permission in their lives. And he says, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's better things that God's holding out on you. He says, you can be like God. And this is a fascinating point, because if you read in Genesis 1.27 and also Genesis 5, chapter 1, we read twice on both sides of the story, the words that man and woman were both created in the likeness of God. Genesis 127, 
You're created in God's likeness. Genesis 5.1, you were created in God's likeness. The serpent shows up and he says, if you eat this tree, you will be like God. This is fascinating to me because the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that they weren't what they already were. The serpent convinces Adam and Eve that they are lacking something that they need in order to become fully who they could be. That they had to go outside of God's design to experience full life. They had to go outside of God because God couldn't be trusted. And this is where the serpent was successful. Because the first step towards shalom breaking or sin, as we call it, is to not trust God. That's the core of all sin. And by the way, do you know what the word faith means? The word faith means trust. And so as we look in the New Testament, we see the importance of restoring relationship with God actually begins with a step of faith. It starts and ends with trust, with faith. And so Eve and Adam in the story choose to believe this lie that God's holding out on them, that there's something else that they need, that they are lacking something, that they aren't already enough in who they were and who God created them to be. And so they go outside of God. They listen to the voice of the serpent. And so when the woman saw that the fruit, was, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. How many of you guys have seen pictures of the, like the, the Garden of Eden pictures, right? You see the pictures with the, the fig leaves, right? Yeah, we'll come back to that in a second. So, but the Lord God called to the men, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Someone needs to explain the rules of hide-and-seek to Adam. He's, uh, he's the first human being. We'll give him a break. Uh, so God said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, there is so much of the gospel, the good news, that is already starting to unravel here. And so let's go back and think about a couple of things that just happened in the story that we read. It says in Genesis 3, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed these fig leaves together and made coverings for their, them, themselves. And they realized they were naked. Now let's talk about nakedness. How many of you guys have been naked before? Uh, now what does it mean? What does it mean that their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked? Does it mean that they were blind and then all of a sudden their eyes were open? They're like, oh, I don't have any clothes on. That's, that's not what's happening in the story. There, there's a new consciousness, a new awareness that is happening. Happening. God is saying, where did this awareness come from that you now have that somehow you think that you are naked, that somehow you think that you can't stand in front of me, that you need to hide from me, that somehow you think you need to cover yourselves? There's something that has switched between Genesis 1 and 2 in this moment with the serpent where you believe the different voice other than God's voice, there's a new awareness and consciousness that's happened. And now suddenly there's this radical vulnerability that they become aware of that they are naked. 
Now, nakedness, obviously they're physically naked, but the, what, what the Bible is starting to unpack for us is it's a, it's a picture of what it means to be known. Up until this point in the story, they were fully known by God and weren't afraid of being known by God. They could stand before God in full nakedness and they felt no shame. And there's something that happens when you and I are naked, when we're vulnerable, that we have this reaction that we ought to hide. I've had this experience many times in my life. I've told some of these stories, um, and I'm going to skip on some of them, sorry, but I, I was remembering this one story. When I was in junior high, my friends and I, we were going down this back lane uh, in the town that I grew up in, and I really, really had to go to the bathroom. Uh, like really badly, and we were quite a ways from my friend's house, and I'm like, I got to go now. Uh, And it was back in the day uh, when, you know, guys wear overalls. Uh, It was cool. Uh, At least it was cool in the small town I grew up in. Maybe in the city, you guys like, that wasn't cool. Uh, But I was wearing overalls, and the things with overalls is it's really difficult to go to the bathroom easily, right? And so I had to, I'm like, I got to go. I take off my overalls, like all the way off. Uh, I was in the back lane somewhere and I found a little spot to go to the bathroom. You know, I pull my pants down and I'm, I'm going. And then my buddy's like, Hey, look up. And I look up and there's somebody sitting on their back deck. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't even finish. And I just, you know, start trying to put on my clothes and I'm trying to run with these overalls that are tripping me up on my feet. Uh, but that's my initial reaction is that I am vulnerable that somebody is seeing me and there's something that I feel shame about and I got to run and I got to hide. This is a, this is a human experience. Is it not? I've had moments where I've been preaching on stage and this has happened to me twice where somebody says to me, your fly is open. I, I like the, the flood of emotions and fear just runs through my body. Like I, I get off stage and I look at my phone and I see like five texts. Your flies open, your flies open, your flies open. <laughs> I'm like, come on. It's happened to me twice. I had one experience where my mic stayed on. This is one of the first times I was preaching. My mic stayed on and I went to the bathroom Somebody ran out and they said, uh, your mic is on. And the guy who was trying to preach was on stage and there was voices coming uh, from the overhead as I was going into the washroom. I've had another time where I'm preaching and my, my belt, I don't know if you guys were around, this one was more recent, where my belt slipped off. Um, it wasn't done up and it just slowly started to sink. <laughs> and it was hanging between my legs. That was another one. I was like, I got off the stage and I see all these texts, your belt. I could feel something hitting my legs, but I, I ignored it. <laughs> These feelings where you're like exposed and you feel vulnerable. It's like, oh, it's, it's excruciating. Now, those are funny stories. You know, I've had moments where I've been in the mall. I remember one time with one of my kids and we're at the mall food court. And it's one of those moments where like one of your worst parenting moments where you're losing it on a kid in a public setting and you would never want it to be replayed on video for anybody. And Lisa gives me that look. It's like, what are you doing? And I'm, I'm losing it on one of my kids. And then I look around and I see that the people in the food court are all looking at me. Like, 
oh, I just want to hide. It's a moment early on in our marriage where I'm going through my browser history on the internet with my wife, Lisa, because I'd been engaging in things that I shouldn't have, and everything in me just wanted to hide. This experience of nakedness and vulnerability is part of the human story. The sense that something isn't quite right, that I have to protect myself, hide myself in some kind of way from those around me. Nakedness is vulnerability. And it's not just the kind of vulnerability that happens when your clothes aren't on. It's the kind of vulnerability that happens when somebody sees you and you can't control what they're seeing or what they think of you. Now, in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the shalom picture of God where we are completely vulnerable, we are completely seen, and in the midst of even being completely seen, there is no shame. To be vulnerable, to be naked, and to feel no shame, to be seen, is to be known and to be loved. Most of us feel like the best that we can do is to be loved. We don't truly believe that if we're fully known, we will be fully loved. And so... We hide ourselves, we protect ourselves, we project certain images of ourselves because we think this is necessary in some level to be accepted. So what happened when sin, when this breaking of shalom entered into the story, when Adam and Eve decided to disobey God, something happened, something switched, a new awareness consciousness happened, and nakedness actually became something that was to be feared, to be unaccepted, to to have to hide from. But we were originally built to be fully known and fully loved. And now we believe that we can never be fully either together. We want to be both, but the best that we could probably do is be loved. And so Adam and Eve didn't lose their physical clothes. They never had physical clothes. What they lost was their righteousness, their purity, their acceptability, their greatness, their glory, their shamelessness. And so what do they do? They cover themselves with fig leaves. And so the Bible explains very early on that something switched in humanity when humanity stopped listening to the voice of God and began listening to a different voice, one that said that God isn't to be trusted and that you should trust in your own self. And so this, now we go to the, the second thing that happens is that because of the problem of nakedness, now we are, we're on to the next level of what happens, and that's this need to cover ourselves. And you can see it right there in the text, Adam and Eve, within the space of a couple of verses, they do three cover-ups. First, they hide from God. Um, they run and they hide from God. The fig leaves, they hide from each other. And the third thing that happens is they start listing off the excuses when God comes and says, what happened? And Adam says, the woman did it. And the woman says, the serpent did it. I don't know if those conversations have ever happened in your house. It wasn't my fault. But what's happening when these excuses happen? It's actually 
You're hiding yourself from yourself. You're not being honest with yourself. As long as it's somebody else's fault, I can believe the lie that I am not to blame. And so there's all this hiddenness that's happening now. They're hiding from God. They're covering themselves. They're hiding from each other. And now they're even lying to themselves and saying, it wasn't me. They're hiding from themselves. So now they're covering themselves from God's eyes, from each other's eyes, even from their own eyes. And we can see this in our day-to-day life, that this happens all the time. So for example, if you're going to, let's say you're going out on a date with somebody and it's the first time you're going out on a date. Think that through for a second. What happens in those series of events? Um, They want to come pick you up at your house. Do you let them in your house? Probably not, right? Not on the first date. You don't want them to see how messy you are, that you don't do the dishes, right? So you at least are going to meet them out on the street, or maybe meet them at a third location. But before you even go out there, what do you do? You put on your best outfit, the outfit that probably minimizes the physical attributes in yourself that you don't like very much, accentuates the things that you want to show off. So you go on a date with this person projecting your best self, and then you get into a conversation, and you try and steer the conversation towards things that you know about, things that you're competent on. If he starts or she starts talking about something that you know, you don't have any ideas about it. You don't want to talk. You steer the conversation in something that you can be more successful at, right? And so all the while on this date, and, and under, you know, this is an obvious example, but what are we doing? We are actually hiding some level of ourselves so that we have the best chance of being accepted by the other. But we do this in all sorts of ways. Let's think about work for a second. Why is it, why is it that some of you work so, so hard And then you can't even look at yourself in the mirror unless you're completely exhausted and know that you gave everything you possibly could to your job. What is that? What about people pleasing? There's, there's some of you in here that, you know, the idea of somebody being disappointed in you is so significant that you do everything you can possibly do to make sure that the people around you are happy. So you serve and you give and you agree and you live your life trying to please others, and it's exhausting, but you keep doing it. Why do you do that? Some of you are very private people, and you have struggles, things that you're worried about or wrestling through, but you would never tell somebody else about those things. You would never let them see the sweat or the worry or the anxiety that you have going on in your life. Why? There's some of you here who you're, you struggle perpetually, perpetually with anger, Why is it that anger dominates your life so much that there's this undercurrent of bitterness that you have towards maybe a certain person, maybe towards a parent, maybe towards that group of people, and you can't get rid of it? Why is that? Why is it that some of you feel like there's so much value tied to being attractive to people of the opposite sex? And you put so much energy into that. Why is that? Why is it that some of us are perfectionists and everything needs to be done exactly right in a certain way and there's a right and wrong to everything? You can't even let somebody else stack the dishwasher. And if things are out of place, it creates anxiety. If things don't work out according to your plan, why is that? I'll tell you why that is or why all these things are. It's fig leaves. It's fig leaves. 
It's the things that we think we need to do to project a certain person who we are. It's the things that we think we need to do to be accepted by one another. It's the things that we think we need to do to protect ourselves from the shame of vulnerability and nakedness. And that's even just how we function with one another. Now let's think about for a second the idea that there are two eyes out there that are holy, that are good, that are completely just, that see absolutely everything. Now, on one hand, we like the idea and we need that to be true. We need it to be true because we don't want to live in a world of hopelessness. We, we want to know that there is a God out there who is just and who is holy and he isn't going to put up with the brokenness in this world and he's going to do something about, about it. If we were to let go of that idea, we would actually venture into hopelessness. And so we love that idea on one hand because it brings hope. But what about us? Where's the hope for us? Because deep down, even when we get beyond lying to ourselves, we know that in us, we're not completely pure. We're not completely just. That we've had a hand in this shalom breaking. And so it leaves us in quite a bit of a predicament. And so the story in Genesis is in this nakedness and this vulnerability and this brokenness God doesn't leave the garden. So this is very important. God doesn't leave the garden. God walks in the garden. God pursues Adam and Eve. And here's a picture in this little story of the whole scope of scripture that God pursues Adam and Eve and he shows up in the garden and he shows up with a few questions. He's asking questions. And if God is asking questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. So let's just get that off the table. God's not going to be surprised by any of these answers. So if God's not asking questions because he doesn't need to know the answer, then why is he asking the question? He's asking the question because we don't know the answer. He's trying to bring us to a different level of awareness. He's trying to help us understand something about ourselves and something about who God is. So God comes in and he asks three questions in the story in Genesis chapter three. And Here's a fascinating understanding of what it means to be healed, what it means to be whole, to be redeemed, to be saved. It's to actually agree with God. This is what the word repentance means. To change your mind, to come in alignment under God. And so God is asking these questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but he wants them to understand the answers. And so he shows up in pursuit and he says, where are you? It's the first question, an invitation for Adam and Eve to become aware of their situation, to wake up. God is asking a question in the midst of this crisis. Where are you? And we could stop right now in the service and ponder that question for you. Where are you? Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, where do you find yourselves in this moment? Where's the pain, the grief, the hurt, the disappointment, the anger, the bitterness? Where are you hiding? Where are you? This is the question of God as he comes through history and through scripture and saying, Where are you? Are you aware? Not that God doesn't know where you are, because he does. Are you aware of where you are? Or are you content, like Adam and Eve, to play this hiding game and even lie to yourself? And then he asks a second question. Who told you that you were naked? And this second question prompts reflection. Because what 
God is really saying, whose voice have you been listening to that wasn't my voice? Whose voice have you put trust into that wasn't my voice? And if we would quiet ourselves enough to take a step back and even answer that question, we would be surprised at the different voices that we have a tendency to listen to. I mean, we have a whole life of stories of coaches, of teachers, of parents, of siblings, of friends, and all those voices in our histories or in our heads. Whose voice do you still listen to? We have the voice of culture, of social media. We have the voice of leaders in our culture, in our country. We have entertainment voices. All of these things that are going around in our heads, and God still comes to us and says, whose voice are you choosing to listen to? Who told you that you were naked? Who are you letting define your understanding of reality, of who I am, of who you are? And then God shows up and he asks the third question. Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Another way of asking the question is, where have you taken your hunger? I gave you a plan. I gave you freedom. I gave you an opportunity to flourish. But did you take that desire and that hunger and did you go somewhere else with it? Which lies did you believe? Which shortcuts did you take? Now this is where we get to the area of confession, repentance, and understanding where we are, what voice we've listened to, and now the decisions that we've made that have broken shalom with God, with ourselves, with others. And even though repentance and confession is uncomfortable, even though bringing your vulnerability into the light is uncomfortable, it is the necessary step to experiencing the life that God created for you. The reason I have, you know, some of those stories of vulnerability I didn't choose, but the reason throughout my life that I choose the uncomfortable act of stepping in to places of repentance and confession and being vulnerable, metaphorically being naked before God and before others is because it is the pathway to healing. So here's how Adam responded to these three questions. The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You will eat the dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Full stop. Pause. Here in Genesis 3.15, the gospel BC, at the very beginning of the biblical story, is the good news right here. What Jesus was going to do is talked about right here. This is the very first preaching of the gospel in the Bible. And so to start off with, God is saying that because of what's happened, there's going to be two offsprings. There's going to be those group of people who are going to live and be defined by this sin and, and this desire to do life on their own apart from God. He said, but I am going to create a new humanity, a new group of people that will want to follow my ways. There'll be two humanities, an entire race of people in a sense, and I will put their heart in their hearts, the ability to recognize where the lie is and where the truth is. They will hate the lie and they will love the truth. And so we see that this is a plural reference. 
There's going to be a group of people, and then there's going to be a group of people. This is what it's saying. But then it, an interesting switch happens. It goes from talking from the plural to the singular. He, everybody say he. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, here's the last part of the prophecy. And what's so powerful about this verse is God goes, as he goes from the plural to the singular, he's saying there's going to be two groups of people and they're going to be at war against each other or at war against the, the lie and the truth. And they're going to be in tension and conflict. And there's going to be one that will come in the future. There will be a specific person that will come in the future. And the last part of the sentence, it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And who is this person? God is predicting that there will be one single descendant of Eve, one person in the future who will destroy evil itself and put an end to what happened in the garden. This person will be a su- such stature and high order that he will be able to take on evil and crush Satan and sin itself. But this will be such an important and momentous struggle that even this great Messiah, this one, this king that is going to come, will be bruised in the, in the process. He'll be stricken in the process, but he will not be conquered. He will be the one that conquers. Who is this person? Well, you're in church, so the answer is Jesus. It's the gospel BC. This is the good news BC that there's going to be an answer to what is happening in the garden. So now let's go back to the fig leaves. Adam and Eve were created to be fully known and fully loved. They couldn't have both, so they tried to cover themselves. But how does the story end? So they gather these fig leaves. They're covering themselves. They're hiding from God, hiding from one another, lying to themselves. And God shows up, pursues them, asks them these questions in the garden, and we see the mission of God, the activity of God, the proaction of God. God isn't a God who stays off in the distance as we struggle through life. He actually comes into their world and continues to do that today. And he shows up on the scene. And here's where the, how chapter two ends. It says, the Lord God, or chapter three, sorry, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Not fig leaves. What does that mean? Well, it means if God made garments of skin, that something had to die. It means that Adam and Eve's covering that God would put on themselves that would take away their shame and would put them back into relationship with God was bought through the life and death of an animal. This is a foreshadow, a projection of what was going to happen through the one was going to come and conquer. This prefigures and foreshadows the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, the holy God, the all-knowing, the all-seeing God, the all-loving God had a plan from the very beginning to cover our sin, to cover our shame, to heal our brokenness. He is too holy to look away. He's too just to look away, but he's too loving to leave us on our own. And so what does he do? God shows up in the person of Jesus, the incarnation, God coming in the flesh to take on the consequence of this brokenness of the sin into himself and clothes humanity so they can be before God and feel no shame. This is what Paul's referring to in Galatians when he said, so in, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ, into the one seed, this one that was going to come. And you have clothed yourselves with Christ so there's that word again. You've clothed yourself with Christ, and now you belong to Christ. 
then you are part of the family of God, Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. This is the gospel BC. And so the question that we come out of Genesis 3 with is, will you choose to cover yourself with fig leaves or with the death and resurrection of Jesus? The Bible tells you that the seed, the Messiah, the one who would defeat sin, evil, and death came in the person of Jesus. The gospel tells you that God fully sees you and he fully loves you. Perfect love casts out fear and so you don't need to hide. You only need to surrender to the embrace of Jesus, the God who still shows up seeking for you, asking you questions, hoping that you will realize that the thing that you're actually looking and longing for is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. The good news, the gospel, the euangelion, the victory that Jesus proclaimed was in the plan of God from the very beginning. So leave your fig leaves and accept the gift of the good news, Jesus crucified. Would you stand as we pray? Lord, we thank you that nothing in this life, in this history, in the history of the world and in our own individual lives has gone beyond your scope of seeing. But Lord, we also thank you in this moment that your good news, your gospel to redeem people back to yourself, to live in right relationship with yourself, to experience the shalom we were created for, this plan was there from the very, very, very beginning. And Lord, thank you for your patience and your grace with us, your grace that reveals like, like these disciples that are going on the road, Lord, we're unaware of what you're doing. And then we have these moments where our eyes are open. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes. We would open our eyes to how you see us, but how when you see us, you don't run from us. You embrace us and you love us fully. Lord, we thank you that this was only possible through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed with the holiness of Christ. Lord, we thank you that the sacrifice that you did on our behalf was enough. We thank you that you give that freely to us when we surrender and put our trust back into you. So Lord, we, we're sorry. Like Adam and Eve, Lord, we put our trust into other things, into other voices, and we choose to put our trust into you, Lord, and in return, you give us salvation and redemption. Lord, it's not something we can earn. It's only something we can receive. And so we receive that. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, If you have never accepted the good news, the gospel of Jesus into your life, we always have prayer teams at the end of service. We would love to pray for you. Feel free to stick around. Uh, The band's going to lead us in a final song. Thanks for coming. And again, there will be prayer teams available after the service. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.